everyone, this is Rescue Replay. My name is Kala and I'm your host. And today we have a really exciting episode. I have a good friend of mine, Craig Amundsen. Uh, he started his NL in 1983 in Burnaby. He's a born and raised Burnaby. And he ended up taking his career all the way to the Cayman Islands where he spearheaded opening the Royal Life Saving Society down in the Cayman Islands. And Oddly enough, or cool enough, like he was under the request of the queen uh, to do this and to bring this forward. And it's a very interesting story. And what I love about this story so much is that it really shows us that lifeguarding has the potential to take us global because we do have this commonwealth kind of aspect to our training and you can take it to different countries. And Craig found the Cayman Islands. So Craig, why don't you tell us like kind of how you started and like how you got to the Cayman Islands and definitely like let's hear that Queen story. It's a good one. Great soundtrack. Thank you, Kala. Pleasure to be here um, and and worried about how much talking I'll be doing. <laughs> I, I liked taking the life-saving courses when I was quite young, 12, yes. 13, doing my bronze medallion. Perfect. Uh, my father had done first aid training all his life and so I learned a bit from him. So it came naturally to enjoy it. And then in 1983, at the same time that I became a lifeguard, I also became a, uh, a life-saving instructor and Perfect. also a, an examiner of the Bronze Medallion, Bronze Cross courses, which we used to do. Right. And so I started volunteering for the organization at an early age, and I enjoyed uh, the sense of power and accomplishment. <laughs> I, I enjoyed traveling to different pools and meeting people. Totally. And, and it, 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 it felt good to be volunteering, too. I also worked. I've worked in a variety of different pools. Um, I saved up my money and I went traveling in 87 and 88. And uh, that led me to go visit other life-saving societies and other organizations that were not even part of the Royal Life Saving Society in, in Brazil, for example, and wow. other countries. I just liked going to beaches and seeing what people did. The um, Through schooling and through other things, I eventually went off and studied political science, right. paid for that with lifeguarding and working on the beaches. The I, classic university student job, yeah. It, it took me a couple of years. I didn't start when I was 16, but I found out about the Vancouver beaches and I started that in 1990 after my travels and I still work with them to this day. Uh, sometimes I'm teaching their lifeguard courses for waterfront. Uh, other times I'm just guarding on the beaches with you know the other 200 employees that That's work in the awesome. system. It's it's a big family. So yeah. just for our listeners, when he's talking about waterfront, we as lifeguard or lifeguards, we have different streams of lifeguards. So we have different programs for pool lifeguards specific to indoor pools. We have programs specific to water parks and we also have programs specific to waterfronts and also surf out yes. in Tofino. There's one surf school in Tofino, which we can we can touch on that one later on. But but um, there are also uh, surf lifeguards in uh, Nova Scotia. They have surf okay, beaches. So on the, Atlantic the other side. Coast, yeah. They used to have lifeguards in Tofino as part of the uh, federal government parks employees, but they stopped that in a budget cut. In of course, yeah. They still need training and help over there. I know there's some people who are doing surf life-saving training there wow. just for the surf community so they can help each other if oh, they need cool. to. Oh, cool. 
but there's a we we reach out in a lot of different ways as you said so you are into the nl pool and the waterfront and this is Mainly, where yeah, yeah this is two. where you've really kind of like settled your your expertise it, it, you know as a younger person when you start working in aquatics uh, most of what you do initially is teach swimming lessons and i certainly did that for a number of years but i found greater personal enjoyment and satisfaction out of teaching the older kids mm -hmm. I, I liked the life-saving aspect um, I liked the learning that we had I liked some of the tradition behind it uh, there's a lot of uh, my goodness there's if you ever get a chance to look in the life-saving BC and Yukon archives some of the techniques that they tried to oh. do over the years yes. to help people survive and I, I should you know blow the horn of the Royal Life Saving Society because it's 133 almost 134 years old now that's wild and way back when they started in the victorian era there was a lot of drownings happening this started in the uk of course and yeah. so they were trying to find ways to help people and even swimming was just becoming more common than knowledgeable yeah. but um one of the techniques and i'll let people research it for themselves was <laughs> um you might be familiar with those things they called the bellows where they blew air on the fires to make them hotter Correct. Yeah. They would uh, think that how to resuscitate somebody would be a technique called blowing smoke up the fundament. <laughs> and I'll let you guys do your own research on that. But That's that awesome. was part of our history. Wow. Not the better part of our history. I did just see a, a fact that like the first bronze medallion course, like the which mm -hmm. is the very first step into becoming lifeguarding or a lifeguard is was taught in 1894 in yes. Canada. The yes. very first bronze, 1894 was the first program we taught here in Canada. It's fascinating to note that the society started in 1891 in London, yes. but very quickly it was in Canada, it was in Australia. So uh, yes, the colonial aspects of our history leave a lot to be desired, right. but in some cases, some positive things helped. And I personally think life-saving training is part of that. Absolutely. So um, back to um, my own story. Yes. I, I also did volunteering with the BC and Yukon branch. Uh, eventually, after being serious in my career, mm -hmm. I, would, I started doing work, uh, working elections. I had done political science at university. Uh, I ended up working in some political offices, working for some local mayors. Wow. And which was interesting because then I got to listen to the political discussion about do we have enough pools? Where should we build our next pool? What's the yeah. money? What's the investment? What's the social and the financial investment and value in building pools? Mm -hmm. And people need to talk about that all the time because yes. every once in a while there'll be a, a, a trend upwards to build more facilities and then there'll be a trend downwards to get rid of some yes. and to replace them with something that doesn't include swimming. And yes. then you have potential generational loss of mm -hmm. swimming lessons, life-saving lessons, first aid instruction, yes. the younger kids really benefit from. Well, uh, and especially when it's coastal and everybody's a paddler. Absolutely. You know, you know, I don't mention this enough as I should, but part of what the Life Saving Society does is promote this entity called Life Saving Sport, which yes. is sports in the pools and in the oceans. Uh, it's huge in Australia. If you're a Life Saving Sport champion, your face is on this Cheerios box in Australia and That's you are cool. making a living. Wow. It's not the same in Canada. But it's a great way to get kids from ages 12, 13, 14, 15, where they start taking life-saving, but they need a couple more years before they can become a lifeguard. Yeah. It is the only sport that has humanitarian principles at its core because you're learning how to save lives. Wow. Every event has a rescue component to it. That's so and incredible. So we try to promote that for the kids who aren't interested in just doing the courses. Mm-hmm. 
eventually I, um, you know, 2005, 2006, I um, was asked to, and I stepped up and I did some volunteer work as a board member for the BC board of the right. BC and Yukon branch. And I eventually did a term as the president. Mm -hmm. And during that term as a president, I also got pushed up onto the national board. So I got to meet other people across Canada who were helping their provincial branches. There, there are 10 provincial branches across Canada, I should mention. And also the territories, uh, BC assists the Yukon territories. They're the same. Yeah. Alberta assists the, the Northwest, Northwest territories. Yeah. And Inuvik, Inuvik is in Alberta. It, my is, girlfriend no, actually, that is in Ontario. My girlfriend works in Inuvik. Nunavut, sorry. Oh, Nunavut. Nunavut. Okay, yeah, yeah, that I'm makes sense. I'm getting my territory because Inuvik is way up in Yeah, uh, exactly. In so Ontario helps out Nunavut and people go up and do training up there. Um, nice. Water safety is important all across Canada. Yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. one of the things I learned uh, in meeting my friends from Ontario is it's the biggest province in Canada. I mean, Vancouver might have about 10 staff with a life-saving society. Ontario has 80 to 100, yeah. much bigger, and you can just in terms of the economics. But that is where a lot of the international aid work in life-saving that happens across uh throughout North America uh, and South America comes from. Mm -hmm. So Canada, we're not the biggest country in the world, but we help out other members, former members of the Commonwealth, if they need help setting up their own infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So Canada, for the past 30 years, has helped set up systems of life-saving programming in Jamaica, in Trinidad and Tobago, in, so cool. in Barbados, in uh, Guyana, in Grenada, uh, you know, many of the many So of the key, countries. too, like all these little islands, like and yeah, the beaches absolutely. and the water access. Yeah. And all the tourists who go down there. Yes. And different from Canada and the U.S., the drowning rate in the Caribbean is can be high in certain areas, but it is more tourists who are the victims. You know, a lot wow. of the locals are a little bit more water safe just by their own cultural tendencies. But that was what led me to, um, you know, I was working in, in other areas, but I would go back to the city of Vancouver and I would teach, for example, the Beach Lifeguard Waterfront course every year in May and June. Okay. And we'd have big classes of 40 young people who wanted to work on the beaches and we'd have four or five instructors and it was just a great collaboration of different types of instruction, different That's types awesome. of people. And that stayed with me. So even when I started doing my goodness, I did lobbying in the mining industry, adventures. Wow. But, you know, if ever my real work was getting too stressful, there was always the summer to de-stress and to put your toes back in the sand and help some people achieve new goals. And, and of course, to teach these courses, you have to uh, maintain your own fitness standards. Yes. So, I, you know, as much as I like chocolate and other things, I still <laughs> have to keep my weight in line and I have to be able to do... The fitness standards, which includes, for your listeners, obviously we have to do a timed 400-meter swim and then yeah. the waterfront. Um, there's some changes going on, but we still do something called the run-swim-toe, which is a very intense five- to six-minute sprint where you run 100 meters and sprint 100 meters swimming out to somebody uh, your own size and weight, and then you tow them back 100 meters. Yeah. And that's quite intense. It's quite oh, hard. Yeah. It's yeah. miserable. I hate it every time I do it, yeah. but I know I shouldn't be on the beaches unless I can get that done. Well, and I know when I teach my classes, like I tell all my kids, like if you're going to be that lifeguard that doesn't get in the pool, you're going to be the least competent lifeguard on the yeah. pool deck. Absolutely. You know, like it's it's all about the basics. And in my last episode, we talked about like how swimming is extremely technical, you know, and if you're not efficient, then 
and somebody's life is hanging in the balance, like yeah. you're really in a dangerous or could be in a dangerous situation. You're absolutely correct. And, mm. uh, you know, I, I tell another little anecdote that I learned from somebody else. If you're ever talking to a lifeguard who's got lots and lots of great rescue stories, yes, they're not doing their job. Yeah. We're, we're there to be about prevention, right? Yes. It's the last resort that you go rescue somebody. Yes. Because that's where the greatest risk happens, especially at a waterfront versus a pool. Absolutely. So that. it's, it's um, you know, you, there there's lots of different people. There's lots of different, uh, you know, uh, aquatics in Canada is dominated by women. You know, yes, 60 it is. percent plus is, yes. is female. Um, but you have a lot of uh, newer Canadians coming and it's great to see some of them trying to step up and get... Um, a greater sense of water safety, whether that's through lifeguarding or swimming instruction or what have you, because yeah. that's where some of our greatest risks of drownings lies. Is absolutely is the, the the new Canadians who come without having had a, a, let's call it a water safety uh, culture from where they've come, or they certainly didn't have pools or, yeah. or areas where they could swim. And so the, there's greater diversity now uh, yes. in in our in our lifeguarding culture and our swim instruction, all of aquatics, and you know that that just needs to be growing strength to strength. I mean, yeah. obviously where, wherever the latest crisis is happening globally and uh, unfortunately, you know, we're hearing about Sudan right now. And so right. people are being evacuated and I imagine there will be more refugees coming. Mm -hmm. And and that's another area where people, if they settle here, can, can help to be adapted about life-saving and water safety. Yeah. So we don't uh, run into, you know, horrible accidents where people don't realize the dangers of thin ice, for example. Oh Winter my drownings, gosh. Lakes, streams, backyard pools that aren't drained, things like that. Absolutely. But uh, so continuing the story, um, I would teach in Vancouver every summer. Sometimes I'd work more or less uh, shifts on the beaches, um, but I had started volunteering uh, on the national board and making those connections. And when I heard about my colleagues in Ontario who were going down to the Turks and Caicos and other places trying to develop or help them develop their own social infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So training to a certain level of lifeguarding and then training local people in those countries to become national lifeguard instructors and first nice. aid instructors yeah, and lifesaving instructors. Because you have, you know, once it takes on its own local balance, that's where it grows and it becomes their own cultural tradition. Yeah. And that's what I found. And, you know, we'll get to the Cayman Islands story next here. Um, what happened to me in particular was an interesting little trigger of events. But uh, 2016 was the 125th anniversary of the Life Saving Society. Yes. So there was, um, I, I had left the National Board in 2015, and I got a letter one day um, in the mail saying, um, we wish to inform you that the Life Saving Society has established with the Commonwealth a, uh, an, an award for the 125th anniversary of the Life Saving Society. And, and congratulations, we're pleased to let you know that you've been nominated wow. for this award. And um, further congratulations, you've won this award, and it will be presented in London in the third week of November of 2016. And I was reading this letter and went, what the fuck? <laughs> Pardon my language. Oh, no, we're but, good. But, you know, it was nothing I expected or knew anything about. But it, it seemed like a great honor. But then part of me is thinking, third week of November in London? Yeah. I've only been to London once before that for like 24 hours. But it's like. That That's not sound... a great time to yeah, go. Yeah, it sounds cold. <laughs> About a week later, I got a quick call from a friend of mine in Ontario who, who said, did you get the email yet? And, and I said, email? What email? No, no, I hadn't checked. And eventually it came in. 
and the email said we can now confirm that the reception for this award in the you know the, the third week of November will take place at Buckingham Palace. Wow. And then all of a sudden you're like going, I guess I'm going to London. Yeah, because you, don't, you, you wouldn't miss that. You wouldn't miss that. No. Uh, I, I ended up taking my oldest daughter, who was then 14 at the time, and we, had, we, we took a week. We made an amazing week. There was about 30 people across Canada. There was about uh, 12 or so people from BC mm -hmm. who were given this award, and I knew some of them. I didn't know all of them. And so we all did the trek, and we had, uh, it was an impressive time. Buckingham Palace is a significant weapon if you want to use it to influence people. Wow. And, and what happened in my case was there was a lineup, and you shake hands with the Queen and Prince Philip, who were both uh, alive and healthy at the time. And then what was most impressive was the Queen at the time was age 90. And after a couple of short speeches and a couple of awards, there was well over 125 people in the room, and she came out and she spoke to everybody. Wow. Everybody. And you, you learned a little bit that um, when she was a teenager herself, she did the earlier courses of life-saving during the war in 1941, 42, 43, when she was younger. She did the same training or the level of training they were teaching at that time. Wow. And so as an organization, we benefited from her personal experience with that. And so she had events over the years supporting life-saving. And in my case, I was the past president of the National Board, and I was supposed to invite her to a conference in Vancouver in 2017 that we knew she wasn't going to come to because she had stopped her travel at that point. Mm -hmm. But protocol, I was supposed to invite her. So I was all set to do that. And the short version is I didn't get a word in edgewise. She said, Mr. Amundsen, thank you very much for coming. We really appreciate all the work that Life Saving Society of Canada is doing in the Caribbean, and we need you to do more. I need you to promise me that you will do more. As much as these other countries are doing well, uh, she rattled off the names of a few of the smaller islands, including Guyana, Trinidad, not Trinidad, sorry, Guyana, Cayman Islands, Turks and Caicos, uh, others that did not have life-saving societies. And as such, they had higher than normal drowning rates, wow. although not much was known about it. Yeah. And I was just holding her hand and going, yes, ma'am. Yes, yes, yeah, what do you say to that? And about a year later, um, you know, there was personal life things that were happening. Life was in transition. Um, somebody sent me a, um, a, a notice off of Facebook where somebody was trying to hire a lifeguard instructor for the Cayman Islands. And somebody sent it to me and said, hey, you should look at this. And I was laughing and so on. Huh, no, no, I certainly won't be doing that. But, um, you know, at a certain point, you, you look at different opportunities when they come up. And so mm -hmm. I certainly didn't miss the trip to Buckingham Palace. And I, I was like, well, it wasn't that they were inviting me personally, but I knew I had the skills and the experience and the knowledge and all of that that yeah. would make me a credible candidate. Yeah, yeah. So I applied for it. I got it. Uh, what it was was an inflatable water park, uh, which are becoming more common across Canada and North America now. They Interesting. Are, they're much cheaper to build than a big water slide park, much less construction, much less in terms of you know engineering costs. Right. And the Cayman Islands are small. Um, they are still a British overseas territory. So just by way of uh, information for people, they're sort of like Canada in the 1930s. Uh, they have their own money. They have their own elected government, but they still have a more direct reporting role to the British Parliament at Westminster. Mm -hmm. And so they are still subject to a higher level of British rule than certainly Canada is now. We're independent, essentially, except for having the Queen on our dollar right? for the moment. For the moment, yeah. That will change. We will yeah. see. Um, 
So I ended up applying for that. It took a little while. Uh, you have to, um, there, there's, there's certain things about the Cayman Islands that sort of help to explain why they were having a problem. Because as far as islands go in the Caribbean, it's fairly affluent. If you've heard about the Cayman Islands at all in popular cultural movies or anything else, mm -hmm. it's generally a negative connotation. It has to do with mm. wealthy people hiding their money. Mm. And it has to do with uh, crime, drug Cartel. transaction, yeah. all of the above. And the, the proceeds of crime flowing through numbered companies. Mm -hmm. And usually the Cayman Islands uh, is in one of those big news stories where they've just found a bunch of data about North Americans, Europeans, and who's hiding their money. So that's what people know about it. And, and it, they're definitely a part of that life there. But um, it's, not, it's not necessarily all that poor. They don't necessarily have, um, you know, what we call homeless people, mm -hmm. but they have people who have lesser opportunities. Right. Um, and the, the population breakdown is interesting to note because only about 55% of the population are what you'd call Cayman nationals. Um, the Cayman Islands themselves were, were never inhabited before colonization, before uh, discovery, whatever you want to refer to it as. Right. Of course, most of the Caribbean indigenous population was killed by mm -hmm. a disease or, or what have you. So it wasn't until about 1700 that people started laying stake to live on the Cayman Islands. And uh, when I got there in 2018, there was about 60,000 people living there. And 55% of them were Cayman nationals mm -hmm. who were uh, an interesting mix of people. Uh, of course, there was former slave owners, former slaves, yeah. uh, lots of um, uh, Latin people who've merged through. And then also a lot of people who come to the Cayman Islands to work from other situations of impoverishment. There's people from the Philippines, there's people from India and other countries who are there doing work in the large resorts, whether they're cleaners in hotels or, or dishwashers or, you know, so there's more employment in the Cayman Islands for, for people than there is and potential employees right. of Cayman Nationals to do the work. But with all that being said, it's also, uh, forgive my municipal uh, background in politics work, um, <laughs> it's, it's suffered by fast growth. Yeah. So I think if I get my numbers right, in about 1970, there was only about 5,000 people living in the Cayman Islands. Okay. By 1990, you were probably up to 25,000 people. So that's a big increase. And yeah. then over the past 30 years, it's, I'm told some people say it's over 70,000 now. Wow. They just had a census a year ago that put it at about 68,000. Mm -hmm. But growth happens quickly there. And it's a small place. Yeah. So they're going to they're gonna cap out quickly. But in that small place, they have an amazing beach called Seven Mile Beach. Uh, obviously, they have a lot of people who um, part of the whole financial culture there is there's no income tax. So a lot of the people who want to move there are necessarily the people who don't want more government and they don't want right. you know, more taxes. Yeah, to live with no tax, that'd be great. And so with that, there is what you might call perhaps a more laissez-faire attitude and they don't necessarily want more government regulation. And there are no lifeguards working the beaches right now. Yeah. There's no lifeguards working at what pools they have. Yeah. There is one facility that has, um, um, it's called the Turtle Center, and, and they have a lagoon, and they have a swimming pool, and they have some people there who are, um, they're called lifeguards, but to my understanding, the level of training they have is about 10 to 12 hours. Yeah. Which doesn't compare no. to American, Canadian, or other. We, we're at, schools. what, 100 hours for everything? If More. you do... Yeah. If, if I throw waterfront in there, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I guess 100 hours bare minimum. That's sure. like the very least that you need and, to do. And most pools won't hire you as a lifeguard. They want no. you to be a swim instructor too. Yes. So you will have to take 
you know, whatever. Well, now it's all through the Life Saving Society with yeah. the Red Cross. Yeah, which we're, we're going through that transition yeah. now. So, so there's a really huge demand in the Cayman Islands here. Well, that's just it. <laughs> so I got down there to train those staff. Um, it was a challenge at the water park. I only worked there for about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, the, unfortunately, the owner was uh, somebody who was not necessarily interested in paying his staff a fair wage. So yes. he started them at minimum wage and they were supposed That's to get hard. wage increases when they achieve certifications like their bronze medallion, their bronze cross. And certainly my goal was That's to take people up to their national lifeguard standards. Right, naturally. I was not successful with anybody because the people who worked there for a little while um, realized they could make more money elsewhere. And mm. I, you know, as much as the owner said he wanted to build a successful company, the, the company doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, I yeah. left in uh, December of 2019 and the government shut them down about a year, or not a year, a month later, mm-hmm. January, February, 2020. By that time I had spoken to many people and I'd seen there was a problem and I had had that great experience of being on the BC board and the national board. And I realized for whatever reason, somebody from the UK should have been down there in the previous 50 years, setting up a life-saving society. And right. that hadn't happened. Yeah. So in January, 2020, I returned after a Christmas break and I said, this is what I'm down here to do. So this is, this is um, key in the timing. So it was just after Christmas in 2020. So like yeah. literally right before, because COVID hit March 2020. Yes, that's exactly what So happened. we're like right before COVID where you have like this big idea to like get the Royal Life yeah. Saving Society open. Yeah. And then? So I, I was down there for about six, eight weeks. And then I left the island to go to a conference for life saving in St. Lucia with some of the Canadian colleagues I had and the Jamaican and the Trinidad and Tobago and the other organizations that had successful programs set up. Uh, I spent about a week there and then traveled back to Canada to visit my daughters and to prepare myself to come back. And then COVID hit hard. Uh, it was kind of interesting because I tried to rush back down. They they announced on March 17th in 2020, that's the day everything started to shut down. Mm-hmm. So the Cayman government announced that you had five days to get back on island uh, or and then they were going to shut everything down for three weeks. They were wow. going to close the airport. I mean, optimistic. even Yeah. Then, right? Yeah. Uh, I made it to Houston. I was going to be the only person on a 737 flying into the Cayman Islands with United Airlines. And and they swore up and down. They said, no, the flight's got to go ahead because we have to get these people off. And uh, in the end, after a couple of hours, I got called back and said, nope, canceling the flight. And, yeah. and they, what was happening everywhere was happening. Everyone was just shutting down harder and harder. Yeah. And at that point, I was uh, just somebody with the plan to do a project. Uh, so I didn't get back there then. It took a good eight, nine months to get back on island. Wow. So that was um, January of 2021. 20, yeah. And COVID was still going on. So I went down and had two weeks in quarantine. Um, so, and also too, you're all like personally funded, like nobody's sponsoring you. Mm-hmm. Like you're not getting money from anywhere. So nope. like two nope. weeks of quarantine is coming out of your pocket because of your passion it was, for you know, prevention. Uh, for, for whatever people feel or think about it, I, I would just go back and say, the queen asked me to do this. And I said, I would do it. <laughs> and people down there would be like, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> yeah. But then part of it is, this is what I've been doing for a long time. And there's a lot of work to be done in Canada. Um, yes, there is. But there there's is. a lot of good people doing that work. Yes. And I just felt, you know, that 
I, I, I can train a lot of people to a very high level right now. I can train people to be swim instructors. I can train people to be life-saving instructors. I can train people to be lifeguards and first aid instructors. Yeah, so you get a lot back. I, and, and, you know, I'm in, I have had enough experience, and maybe it's stubbornness, to just say, this needs to happen down It's there. worth let's, it. Let's yeah. make it happen. Yeah. So it took a good six months after I got down there. There's the logistics of it. There's uh, establishing a nonprofit. Um, there was a few little hiccups. Um, you can't just call something royal uh, because it's the British Overseas Territory. They had a rule. You couldn't use the term royal or imperial in the name of your company or your organization. Oh. And I, I was saying, but but I'm not going to call it Craig's lifeguard training because that doesn't mean anything to people. <laughs> yeah. But and then I, I had to get a letter written from the Commonwealth Office in London, and they wrote down that I had they had my permission, I had their permission right. to do this, and this was the organization, and they fully supported me. Great. So that took until well June fifteenth, twenty twenty one, was when okay. we officially got our nonprofit status, and that's a tricky point too. Uh, people were like, nonprofit? Why don't you? part of the, the Cayman um, laissez-faire econo economic model is if you wanted to open a company down in the Cayman Islands, you must have a Cayman partner. Okay. And by law, the division of assets of that company goes 60% to the Cayman National and 40% right. to you. Wow. So you better have your finances in straight before you start a business down there. Okay. And, and that's the only way to get on the island permanently is to have a work visa. So you need the business license or the nonprofit license mm -hmm. and then the work visa. Wow. Having a nonprofit, uh, they also charge an arm and a leg. Uh, lawyers are charged $20,000 a year for their work visas. Wow. Uh, a manager might be five or $6,000. I should mention that the Cayman dollar is about $1.60 Canadian. Okay. So uh, even though you're not paying taxes down there, you're paying a living tax. Down yeah. There. So it's, it's everything it's more is expensive. imported. Yeah. Everything has a duty on it. It's much more expensive. Yeah. Okay. So by the summer, I it took a little bit of time to get my work visa. It took a little bit of time to get insurance. But then we just started training. I I, I should have mentioned too in the summer of 2019 with the uh, water park that I worked at, we ran summer camps for kids. We did bronze medallions, bronze yeah. crosses. Totally. Um, and those were the first ones that were ever offered down there. Yeah. And the good part about it is being affiliated with Canada, for those who have a connection to Canada, they can come up with their certifications and work in Canada if they have the right level. Yes. So as of today, uh, it's not a huge number, but there is um, officially six people who I've gotten all the way up to, to uh, sorry, National Lifeguard Pool and Waterfront. Mm -hmm. Because that's what they would need to work and be effective in the Cayman Islands, but it also lets them work in Canada. It's that's the same. so cool. So it's the growth has happened slowly. Mm -hmm. um, it's still happening slowly, a mm -hmm. little too slowly. But I've because of my involvement with the BC and national branches, I've taken our model down there. The one thing every branch in Canada does every year is produces a drowning report. Yes, a nice little pictograph saying, "Here's the problems with drowning in Canada." Group number one is young men and alcohol. Yes. Group number two is older men and alcohol. Yes. Group number three is older men and their boats and alcohol. Yes. For some reason, uh, women only are about 20% of the drowning rate. So good for you guys and Thank try to you. keep that number Thank down. Thank you. Yeah. But that's the opposite of what it is in the Cayman Islands because it is predominantly tourists who drown there and predominantly older tourists. The numbers skew to 50, 60, 70 and above. Wow. And in my efforts to get the organization set up, I would talk to people down there and, and right away, you're the bearer of bad news. Yeah. You guys have not only do you have a drowning problem, if you look at international statistics, 
in 2018, they had the worst drowning rate in the world. That's incredible. It is. It is hard to think about, and it's not yeah, front page news. Yeah, incredibly down hard there. to think about. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you know, compared to Canada, which has about a 0.7.8 rate of drownings per hundred thousand population, that's mm -hmm. five six hundred drownings a year for our 38 million people. Mm -hmm. uh, I always compare it to the UK because they're the you know they're the country of authority over the Cayman Islands. Their drowning rate is about 0.3. They're wow. half of that of Canada's. Why? Because it's too freaking cold. Who swims? <laughs> the, you know, you got the channel swimmers, but they're loonies. All of them are loonies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, they're wonderful people. They, yeah. But um, you know, they, they're they the UK drownings are similar to ours. It's again young men and alcohol, right? The, right. The, the, whatever you want to call them, the the, the northern countries have well, higher this... drowning rates with that type of problems. Yeah, and this is where, like earlier, we had mentioned that, like. With lifeguarding, we're not really focusing, like, yeah, we teach you how to do rescues, but yes. we really want to make a point of preventing them. Absolutely. Like when you said, oh, the guy that's done 100 rescues, well, he didn't do a very good job because he should have the prevention and intervention skills. to. Yep. So because every drowning in the history, it doesn't matter what the story, this, that, boat, alcohol, PFD, no PFD, preventable very much preventable like in the uk they do a whole stream of, of uh, public service announcements on especially young men going out with your mates being mm -hmm. careful walking home after getting pissed up at a pub yeah because they have lots of canals and people just fall into water sources somewhere and that's where a good number of their drownings come wow. from sadly wow. and of course they had a tragic thing just earlier this year where four young boys fell through the ice uh, somewhere and they were searching for them and it took a while to find them and it was just horrific Wow. And the children's drownings are easily the most preventable. It just requires supervision, which is always Yeah, that's always, always a, a that's always a trick. So the the end result with 2018 was that the Cayman Islands had 14 drownings of American tourists. And wow. the part that was shocking for me was that didn't make front page news in the US. And I have to balance my public speaking about this because um, there's already people down there who don't want me saying they've got a bad problem because that will impact their tourism industry, yeah, and then which is their highest uh, producer of jobs for yeah, people. Yeah, their economy depends on it. They absolutely depend upon it. Yeah. So, and the funny part for me is what I'm always suggesting to them is that they don't have the opportunities down there that I had as a kid. You know, at 14, 15, I knew I could become a lifeguard and become a swim instructor and have a great first job. Yeah. And it's hard work to get there and it costs a fair bit of money to get there. But then, you know, you've got your job at age 16 or 17. That will get you your first car. That will help pay for college, yeah. university. All and a lot of people move on from that. Yeah. Uh, I'm one of the people, along with a bunch of my friends, we, we stayed with it in one way, shape or form. So the that doesn't happen down in the Cayman Islands. And if they're going to move, and I'm pushing the government very hard to move, if they're going to move, that's probably what their first instinct will be, is providing mm -hmm. more work for young Cayman people. Because my estimate is there's easily 100 to 150 jobs, not only in lifeguarding, but in swim instruction down there yes. that are not there right now. Yeah. And you tell people like that, and they look at you like, who is this guy? Yeah. Sorry, what's your name? Actually, I, 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 an unnamed minister and I sat down with two other ministers and uh, I had spoken to one of the other ministers before and this is last summer, summer of 2022. And 
two ministers had said publicly it was time for Cayman to have lifeguards and have those jobs go to Cayman Nationals. Yeah. And I was just going, yes, yes, let's do that. Last, let's. Yes, exactly. So we had this meeting and this certain minister who I hadn't met previously um, uh, took a few minutes after my introduction to go, wait a minute, sorry, who are you? <laughs> Craig Amundsen, sir. And, and, and let me get this straight. You started your own nonprofit. Well, it's not my nonprofit, but yes, I started it. It's part of the larger World yes. Life Saving Society the family. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, and you're the only employee of that. <laughs> yes, sir, I am. I'm, I'm technically, my title is the executive director, but I probably should have just called myself the chief cook and bottle washer because it would have been cheaper for the application fee. Um, and and I, I'm the main trainer. Um, I, one of the successes I've had this year in 2023 is I uh, did a small class training earlier this year, and there's now two other women who are about 40 years old and both have strong aquatic backgrounds, both South Africans. Wow. But their backgrounds were such that they were able to um, challenge the bronze medallion and bronze cross and they're now life-saving instructors. The tricky part is they both have busy other jobs. So yes. they're, you know, they're not able to just quickly start training 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. and, and in the time that I've been down there with the full-time work, uh, it, it hasn't been um, achieving, let's call it full-time salary. Right. Yeah. It, it, I've, there's been enough money to stretch it out and make it going. But the, the real change will come when the government decides they need lifeguards. Mm -hmm. So the three things that I've targeted that will help them move is I put a team together called the Royal Life Saving Societies, Cayman Islands uh, National Drowning Research Team. Big, long title. But there's three doctors involved who all work, obviously, in the hospitals of, of the Cayman Islands and a young man who is the clerk of the coroner's court. It turns out they've always had some pretty good data down there. It's just nobody's ever asked for it. Nobody's wow. ever asked the question. Yes. So because it's a small island, we decided to focus on a 10-year study. So we've done that from 2012 to 2022. And we've got that data now. We're still working on turning it into an infographic, just like what we do here in Canada. Right. But we're, we're ramping up the pressure as much as we can. So one of the things that happens every two years is something called the World Conference on Drowning Prevention. And that is through this entity called the ILS, or the International Life-Saving Federation. Yeah. For lack of a better word, it's the UN of Aquatics. Yes. Life-saving, life-saving sport, yes. swim instruction, things like that. And Canada, uh, the, the, the Royal Life-Saving Society is the full member for that. So now I, I haven't yet applied to the ILS to be a member as the Cayman Islands, because I don't think you'd be allowed to vote, but I might <laughs> do that shortly. Mm -hmm. But what we did was uh, earlier this year, we took the data and we put it into an abstract and it helps having medical doctors who are good writers too. And so what the numbers have proved is that over 10 years, uh, the Cayman Islands drowning rate is still pretty bad, even if you average everything out. Mm -hmm. And again, the problem is if their population is still somewhere between 60, 70,000, whatever the number is in a given year, it extrapolates higher to reach 100,000 and make it comparable to other international standards. Wow. So I've now told the government that, A, we've done the drowning research and the numbers don't look good. I've now told them that we're going to present this at a uh, conference which is happening in Australia in December, but also there's going to be a healthcare conference in October. We're going to present it there. One of the doctors will present in October and I will present in December. And um, it's, it's, let's call it building up pressure because it's wow. just going to become more and more public. And the goal of doing the research, even the title of our abstract was, 
ways to reduce drowning with these efforts, which we've suggested the government should consider. Yeah. And, and they are doing some efforts, um, but there's also roadblocks all over the place. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a gentleman on islands um, who has a great history with water safety, and he runs a couple of companies, so he's wealthy. He's trying to set up a, a program that will target swimming lessons to the youngest of kids, mm-hmm. K, grade one, grade two. And he's planning to do that with a portable, um, essentially half of a tank, half of a container will be turned into a pool. And that will be taken to every primary school there for six weeks and wow. teach the youngest of kids just the basics of floating and how to swim literally 15 feet. Yeah, just to right? get yourself to safety. I've yeah. One of our biggest successful programs in Canada is called Swim to Survive. Oh, and yes. That Love targets this program. the eight years old. Mm-hmm. And I turned that program over to some colleagues who work in the Department of Sport down there, and they have a total of three swimming instructors for the whole island. Mm-hmm. Um, and they took that program and they tried to run it this past fall. But what they found was out of, let's say, between six and eight hundred grade eight, not grade eight, eight year old students in year three, grade three, only about 200 showed up. Wow. And and that was because the schools themselves were not sending their kids to that program. Somehow they have that authority, which is like strange because we would think this is a valuable skill that every school child should learn. Definitely. And then even worse, the program, out of yeah. the 200 kids who did show up, 75% of them couldn't swim a length. They couldn't swim 25 meters. Wow. So the swimming yeah. abilities were lacking. Very lacking. So that's number one. Number two is trying to use the Canadian model of our national lifeguard standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was developed uh, in 1964 because there was five or six different entities doing lifeguard training. And our population wasn't enough to have that kind of you know, a competitive environment, if you will. It didn't help to do training with one company in Vancouver and then move to Ontario and find out they won't accept your awards. Yes. So we changed that back in 1964. So the National Lifeguard Standard is actually in the public realm. Uh, the control that the Life Saving Society has over that is the ability to train the instructors. So you do have to become a good instructor. You have to work your way up the courses, mm-hmm. prove that you're a good instructor mm-hmm. by teaching swim lessons and then life-saving lessons and mm-hmm. then first aid lessons and, and then, then lifeguard, yeah. right? Yeah. And by the time you get up to that level, you can you can set up your own company if you want to. Yeah, and, well, you know, here we some, are. With, there's some yeah. very successful companies that are doing great work in teaching the programs that Really, I guess you'd say the Life Saving Society is sort of the caretaker of this yeah. public realm information. Yeah. yeah. So that's what needs to happen down there. I mean, everyone thinks I'm down there to sort of take over. Um, the Red Cross is down there, um, but they're they're teaching a part of the problem. I've, I've said that it's an expensive place to live. Yeah. Um, there's not much interest in hiring lifeguards or training people to become better trained in first aid or lifeguarding because of the expense of it. Yes. And so what they've done, and preceding the time that I've been down there, was um, our, our, their term for lifeguard eventually came down to a total of nine hours of training which those who've done any training or aquatics yeah. will know that that's just not going to cover. That doesn't even cover our first aid class that we their, need here. Their standard first aid course is six hours, where ours is 16 hours. Yes. And we do an awful lot of repetitions. We do a lot of drills. We do a lot of simulations. Yes. Uh, down there, I, I also, as a new employee, when I arrived in 2018, had to take the, the course. And uh, the, the gentleman teaching was fine. And he said, well, this is embarrassing because you're clearly much more advanced than this. Mm-hmm. But it was about four hours of watching videos 
pretty good videos. The Red Cross has some great resources to it. This is American Red Cross who is yeah. um, promoting that. But you just don't get enough practice. Yeah. So there's been no instances on island where people working, they have a couple of spray parks at the fancy resorts. Okay. The, there's a hotel called the Kimpton and the Ritz-Carlton, and they have a, a bit of a mini spray park area. No real standing water, but mm -hmm. slides, buckets dropping on your head, lots of fun. And the people they had working there, they called them attendants. And I guess they had that level of training. And then less than a year ago, a very bad incident uh, got a lot of negative uh, notoriety on um, a Facebook group called Women in Cayman. Okay. You do not want to make the mothers mad. Ooh. You do not want to show them how bad the training is. Mm -hmm. It was, it was uh, highly, highly uh, angry language. What occurred was uh, a young boy um, playing in that spray park area um, had an anaphylactic reaction to something. Oh, no. And none of the staff knew what to do, oh, despite no. the fact that they had had first aid training. Maybe they all froze. So the, the woman who wrote up this very angry letter, it was her boyfriend who knew what to do. And he went asking them for their first aid kit. They didn't know where it was. Oh, and he knew this no. boy was having anaphylaxis. And, and his first instinct was, let's get him some Benadryl. They didn't have any. Yeah. The boy survived, but it was that reaction and that poor training that, um, I shouldn't say poor training, just not enough training. Yeah. There's yeah. people down there who know what they're doing, but you've got to take it to a level where people are going to react properly when they need to. Well, and so, and I was talking about this in my previous episode, the, what sets lifeguards and first aiders apart from our emergency services is like 99% of the time, our jobs are quid pro quo. You don't have to do anything. You're just there yes. making sure everything's in line, but you yep. have to be ready to jump at that 1% yes. and you have to know exactly what to do and you have to be fast at it. And hopefully you're able to take that 1% down to half a percent by seeing the problem before it gets started, yes, right? And exactly. that's where some of the training comes from too. Exactly. So that example led uh, a lot of negative um, news. Um, from that, I've had requests to do more first aid training for some organizations, which Excellent. I have done. But at the same time, I'm there's other first aid trainers down there. Mm -hmm. And they could do a good job by teaching longer courses. Yeah. We will see. Um, you know, I, I, I've tried to stay in my lane. Yeah. I'm the life-saving side. You don't want to be a bull in a on life shop. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, but I'm also able to train people um, how to become a first aid instructor. With, well, and your experience. And a swim instructor. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, so that, that, that um, minister who I was referencing earlier, um, the, the end of his little story was, you know, so, so you set up your own life, you set up your own nonprofit. And you're the only employee. And he was clearly implying that somehow I'm making myself rich off of this down there. Right. And, and I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. How come I haven't heard of you yet? <laughs> and then I had to bite my tongue because, frankly, his, his staff hadn't returned my calls or emails. Mm. Because down there, the Life Saving Society didn't mean anything to people. What is yeah. this? Who is this? Why this is not important for the so minister? new. So new. So new, yet so necessary. Yeah. And, and uh, so I am, I am, I'm home in Vancouver for a little while. Um, there's ongoing negotiations uh, later on this week or next week. I'll be taking part in a radio program down in the Cayman Islands where we'll be announcing the Amazing. results of the drowning research. Uh, we'll be announcing that, you know, the goal and, and the government has had these reports for um, almost a year now. 
-hmm. that you know the goal is to copy the Canadian model not necessarily that we're going to train people to be up to the national lifeguard level because I know that's a challenge mm -hmm. but we need to have a model that's working and yeah. right now the best model that's working in the Caribbean is actually Jamaica Jamaica benefited 25 years ago from some support from the Canadian organization primarily people from Ontario and, you know, those are my friends and colleagues now. They all stayed at my condo uh, in February <laughs> for two weeks while we oh, did some awesome. training together and raised everyone's standards. Awesome. Um, but right now, uh, Jamaica is teaching a model uh, that is a minimum of 50 hours of training, which, again, it doesn't meet the Canadian standard no, of over 100 hours. No, but it's better than nothing. It's better than nothing. Better and, than and nine hours. And how you hours. shape it, you know, if you can target people who are already good swimmers mm -hmm. and have, you know, the ability to do good rescues, that will cut out some of the bronze medallion, bronze cross level training, and that will take it up higher into the lifeguard level training, and more specifically the first aid. Yeah. Um, Cayman Islands has great hospitals. They've got some hospital tourism going on down there for people who need, you know, different surgeries. So why not, why not do it, it down there? Yeah. Okay. They've got, you know, excellent ambulance services. But, you know, it's a small island and it's got some pretty good roads, but there's times when the ambulances can be delayed. So this is my effort with the first aid. You need people who can support a victim and keep them alive until that exactly. advanced level of life support gets there. Yeah. Wow. So that's part of the discussion. And I, I know for a fact that, you know, some of the people are going, there's got to be a cheaper model than this. Yeah. But the truth of it is there's definitely private American companies who will come down in and run a three-week program and say, you're lifeguards. Yeah but then they won't come back. Yeah. So the purpose of a society is to, and, and right now I've trained close to 200 people over the time that I've been down there. Wow. Some of them, That's again, great. they're the six people who have gotten to that high national lifeguard level. Yeah. But the, the end result is getting some more people to buy into it so that they will take on the role of being a trainer themselves. Yeah, it's establishing that succession plan, which for my company, Rescue Ready, with targeting small remote communities that's yes. exactly what it's about it's not about me monopolizing them it's about me setting them up so that they can succeed on yes. their own Absolutely. and then they have their own like little cycle that they can go through and then you can move on to other places because support needs to be filtered out everywhere like yeah. and it's establishing that community for education to really harbor itself absolutely yeah so um we will see i mean the other there the, the positive side of me says that this is going to happen and the government is going to at the very least put out an rfp yeah and and that will allow us to you know like certainly i would bid on it and i the the mounts we've been charging have been reasonable and affordable for most of the caymans but to get to a lifeguard level that's more expensive so the government's going to have to undertake some of those costs yeah more than likely they will apply a tax on the tourism industry to help fund that. And, and yeah. I think that's a viable model. Yeah. The, the various resorts down there may choose to bring their own level of training in, mm -hmm. but the goal will be to help everyone get to the same standard so that whether it's myself or there's a, there's a, a, a woman from the YMCA who's also a lifeguard trainer, she just doesn't teach any courses. There's mm -hmm. the gentleman from the Red Cross who's got a good level of training, but he does mainly first aid, so he doesn't have time. Yeah. And the fact of it is, why do a full lifeguard training course when there's no jobs? That's where the government's going to have So to that's act. the ultimate goal of yeah. this whole project is to bring lifeguards in as a reputable job, yep. especially for our younger, like, so in some of the metropolitan cities, we use this as a way to keep kids off the street and keep mm -hmm. them safe, like at-risk youth, Absolutely. you know, things like that. So it's the same idea for the Caymans. And I like how it's 
jobs for people of the Caymans. Like, you know, it's not necessarily set up for like immigrants to come in and and take over and monopolize those jobs. Like, I love that it's for the people in all aspects. Yeah. And and the goal is to, you know, it's always about succession planning. I want somebody who can replace me. Yeah. Now, it might take a while to find somebody who talks about as much as I do. <laughs> well, for but, us keeners, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. It, the, we're a dying the, you know, breed. <laughs> the other part would be to get a couple of a small group who've done the training and are good and then send them up to a couple different locations in Canada to get some different experience. Yeah. And, you know, wrap that in. I, I always liked the courses that I taught with the Vancouver Beaches because we had four or five instructors all coming the from The collaboration. Yeah. You, you learn more by working with more people. Oh, absolutely. So that's the dream. Um, you know, there there is always that in the reality. The government can choose not to do anything. Yeah. They can choose to put up signs saying no lifeguard on duty, no swimming, swim at your own risk. That's fair. But the amount of drownings that they've had, uh, earlier this year there was uh, an article by, I forget who, it was just an online mm-hmm. comment about the safest places in the Caribbean. And it spoke about crime, spoke about other things, and that's what it was targeting, and it it listed the Cayman Islands as one of the safest places. And I noticed, I looked through their entire little article, it didn't say anything about drowning rates. Oh, interesting. So this is the challenging part. If the government's not going to move, I I will have to, you know, push harder in different areas, including Mm -hmm. people who are putting out um, information like that, saying, actually, did you know if you compare the, the drowning rates throughout the places in the Caribbean that have active life-saving societies, it's mm-hmm. pretty good. Um, nice. In the Cayman Islands, where we've just got started, it's not very good. Yeah. And that's the hard part about being, you know, the messenger of bad news. Um, so I always try to keep the message in popular. But if the government decides not to move, and they don't move very quickly, um, I no, will say there this, is that island time. I will say this politely. Uh, a couple of months ago, they introduced their very first legislation on sexual harassment. Oh, wow. They are very behind the times. There's there's other horrible stories, you know, like everywhere. There's there's bad actors and people who are Absolutely. horrible. And, Absolutely. and the Cayman Islands has those too. Yeah. yeah no and worries. they're not yeah. necessarily the fastest to move on it, but mm-hmm. that's changing as well. And I have three daughters, so I pay a lot of attention to this when of I bring course. them down. Of course. But the, the, there is um, the potential of either, uh, you know, getting the government to move and having some more uh, harder full-time uh, one to two-year contract to put that program in place and mm-hmm. to get some people trained up to be aquatic programmers, for example, because yeah. they've got the facilities, they've just got nobody operating them properly. Yeah. Um, but there also is the potential that I might say no. And so what I will do then is uh, turn it over into something a little bit more like a four to five months window per year where I go down and say, all right, these are the courses I'm offering. These are when they're offered and then make sure they're full. Yeah. Because Do your marketing. the demand over yeah. 12 months now isn't that great. And it's not yeah. enough to, to fill the full-time job requirement. Right. Right. But um, there is still the demand. There is still the people who want to have their kids trained properly and safely. Mm-hmm. And, and as the media continues with stories of drownings as they happened, you know, they started this year having a drowning a month, January, February, March. If they keep up that rate oh, again, man. they're going to have, again, one of the worst rates. In the world, and that yeah. is the challenging part when you're talking to people and, you know, they get resistant to what you're saying. Yeah. And you yeah. don't ever want to get into an argument with people. But no. I've heard some interesting excuses for the drowning rate. And, and I've heard... Um, even more than excuses, people saying, well, it's okay because they were older people <laughs> or it's okay because they're tourists. Oh, it, sure. It wasn't yeah. Cayman people drowning. It's, yeah. 
yeah, but the tourists are coming and funding your economy. Yeah. And if word yeah. gets out to the cruise ship People industry, to the others, go. they won't mm -hmm. be there. And, exactly. And, so it's been an interesting adventure. I'm still, um, I've got a lot of people interested in how do you get down there? Yeah, I was, <laughs> and I was going to say for our listeners, like, hey, hopefully with, you know, bringing this to Canada and opening up everybody's eyes, they'll come flocking to you like, Craig, I want to come down to the Cayman Islands. I want to teach. I want to do that. And people, people have offered. I have had people come stay at my place. Uh, the tricky part is getting a work visa to do uh, it right and, yes. and that's something i'm trying to work with the government because i envision i can't see myself staying down there forever but if there is the potential for some local people to take it over and the potential for people from canada with life saving society certifications to come down for a month two months three months mm -hmm. and run whatever programs can be run whatever the demand is there for yeah that would be success well and opinion. that's better sustainability yeah right? and exactly and that's better than nothing so yes. Yeah, definitely. Like, I'm hoping that with, you know, exposing you to this podcast and to filtering it out, like you're going to start gaining some more momentum. And mm -hmm. you had mentioned earlier, like doing some media releases for, you know, against the government or, you know, kind of like encouraging the government. In yes. Encouraging. Welcoming the government into. And we all know how the government and media sometimes that can be. They, we, we had a good meeting in February, and uh, I, I left them with some questions and some proposals, and I haven't heard back yet. And, and they're busy, and, yeah. and it's, uh, it's a small population. Um, many people know each other very well. Many mm -hmm. people are related. I, I, I know I'm a known quantity down there. Yeah. That's, that's probably the best story to end on, because uh, as I was going to be fly, trying to fly down in March of 2020 when COVID was hitting hard, Yeah. Um, when they told me the flight was going to be canceled, I just thought, no, no, wait, you don't know how important I am. I, I must. <laughs> so I, I, they, they got me on the phone. I, I was, I was telling them that I had, I had approval from the government to set up this nonprofit. And mm -hmm. I thought that would allow me back on the Island. And so I got on the phone with somebody from United Airlines in the Cayman Islands, and they quickly put me on with an immigration officer. And the immigration officer listened to me for about 30 seconds. And, and I said, but I, I'm starting this nonprofit and I need to be down there to do it. And yeah, and yeah. she just went, Mr. Am Mr. Amundsen, we know who you are. <laughs> we know what you're doing on island. You're not getting back down here today. It doesn't matter if you have friends in the cabinet. Nobody's getting back on the island today. And that was the closing down of what happened with everywhere with COVID. Yeah. But that was an interesting prospect with knowing that the government knows that much about me <laughs> yeah and it was like oh my god big brother but yeah uh regardless uh there are fans and supporters down there and actually this will be the story i finish off on because part of it all has already been worth it uh there's one little girl who's alive today because in 2019 one of the uh one of the young women who i trained through bronze medallion bronze cross and standard first aid on a day off mm -hmm. uh her daughter pulled her attention that the neighbor's pool, which was a condo, somebody, um, a little girl, uh, fell into the water and nobody noticed because no. nobody was around the pool. Oh my so gosh. this little girl was about three or four years old <gasps> telling her mother that there was a girl next door who was oh. only about two. Oh no. She oh. went next door. The girl was non-responsive at the bottom of the pool. She brought her up. She did CPR on her and wow. she brought her back. Wow. So Bravo. because she had Bravo. done her bronze medallion, bronze cross, uh, I nominated her through the BC and Yukon branch. Amazing. And so in 2020, she got that award. 
Amazing. Except I had to get it on her behalf because she couldn't make it up to Canada. Yeah. It took until 21 and 2021. Um, and by that time, she had uh, started uh, new work. Uh, they had just started uh, a Coast Guard down there as one of their efforts to not only do water safety issues, yeah. but also crime patrol for yeah. drug traffickers, yes. things of that yes, nature. Yes, absolutely. Definitely. So that. when they had the inaugural graduating class of able seamen, which was the first level of work that they use for um, employment in the Coast Guard, yeah. um, I got to sneak up on stage and we presented her with the Canadian medal or the BC and Yukon branch medal, which is called the Silver Medal for Bravery. Amazing. And we do that once a year in, in BC. We just had ours a couple of weeks ago. And it, it's filled with wonderful stories. We usually get pretty good media on it, too. Amazing. And that got presented to her. And uh, I, I have at least three more people who have similar stories, aquatic-related problems that required CPR, things yeah. like that. Yeah. And so when I go back down, I will be going down with more stories like that to share. So that's the positive stuff to yeah. try and do, because it's the rescue stories that make the difference more so than shaking your finger and saying, you must do this because I'm a tall white guy from Canada telling you, <laughs> you must do this. Right. Yeah. It, you know. Well, yeah. And definitely those stories, they really help inspire and they really help set the reality that like what you're doing and what you're learning is very valuable and it's very useful. And it is a brilliant thing for your kids. Absolutely. It, you know, if, as we know in Canada, most of the people I did my earlier training with went on to work in the ambulance or firefighters yep. or police yep. or nurses yep. and doctors. This is where it all starts. It, 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 it sets young people up with that humanitarian instinct. That Absolutely. Is Absolutely. Well, I have to say, like, it's been such a joy to have you on. Uh, this was a great episode. One of the things for me, like, with this podcast like having somebody to talk to while recording a podcast episode you know i was saying i was saying earlier before we started that like you know i teach all these classes but to record a podcast now you're talking to yourself you know and i always close all the blinds and like i'm like okay i have to get into the zone so it was really such a joy to have somebody to talk to and especially somebody with such good experience and everything is my mic on yeah oh yeah. that's good yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> Thank yeah. you. No, it's a pleasure to be here. And, um, uh, much success in the sharing of your stories because it's important. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. And so I also wanted to say how we met. So Craig and I met about a year ago. We mm -hmm. were updating our first aid instructor together. We had never met each other before. And we were doing a simulation together where I was the rescuer and I had to do something wrong for the other instructor to correct me. And I ended up spraying Craig in the eye with a fake inhaler. <laughs> I'd forgotten all about that. Yeah. You're the crazy one. No, yeah. Kidding, kidding. Yeah. It was, I was supposed to like administer medication and the, the intention was for the instructor to like correct me, but yes. he didn't get to me in time. And somehow the, the spray had gotten into your eye and it was the whole, it burns. It burns. Yeah, the whole ideal. It was, it was a fake inhaler. It wasn't anything real and his eyes fine. So we're good there. I think so. Yeah. yeah. You can still see, right? Oh, that's awesome. Thanks for tuning in. You guys join us next week for our next episode. And this is Rescue Replay, out.